Now we're turning to Philippians chapter 2 again. Of course, last week we were looking at the Christian life inside out. And we looked at what it is to work out our salvation, as verse 12 tells us, the Christian workout. And the fact that we work out our salvation because God is the one who worketh in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So there was the Christian's work out and God's work in. The portion that we're looking at this morning, verses 14 to 16, speak of silent lights. Silent lights. Verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. I think all of you will know that lights generally don't make any noise, but lights burn. They don't make a noise, but they send forth an effulgence. I heard our brother George Bates recently telling a story of a friend of his who was asked to go and mend a doorbell for an 84-year-old woman. Of course, you men know what it's like. You're asked to do something and you put it on the back burner for a little while and then it becomes a long while. And eventually the wife nagged and nagged and nagged and nagged at him that he decided I better go around and fix this lady's bell. And when he got round to the woman's house, of course, he knocked on the door. And when she came to the door, she said, my bell's broke. It's totally broke. I need a new bell. You can try and fix it. But as far as I'm concerned, I need a new bell. And lo and behold, he tried to ring it and it wasn't working. So he got a screwdriver out and started to take it apart. And he found that all that was wrong with the bell was a flat battery. So he went to the little woman in her living room and says, no, it's all right. It is working. She says, no, I'm sorry, but it's not working. She says, I try to ring it. Other people try to ring it. It's not working. He says, you don't understand me. It is working. But you have a flat battery. And all you need to do is go down to the local corner shop and with a few pounds is buy a new battery and I'll fit the new battery and everything will be all right again. Your bell will ring once more. And as soon as he said that, she said to him, well, could you get me one for that light on the ceiling there? Because that burns every hour of every day and it's costing me a fortune. And the man says, no, dear, I can't get you a battery for that light because it takes more power to shine a light than to ring a bell. It takes more power to shine a light than to ring a bell. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying to you today. It's good to be vocal in our Christian lives, and we're exhorted to. And in recent portions of this book, we've been told how Paul was encouraging these Philippian believers from prison to go out and not be fearful, but to tell people of the love of Jesus no matter what the consequences of suffering might be for them. But what Paul is coming to now here in these verses is that shining a light is more superior than making a noise. 
It is right to make a noise. It's right to be vocal. But we ought not to do that at the exception of letting the light of the gospel in the life of Christ shine from ours. It's important to be vocal in our Christian faith. But what Paul is now touching in these verses that we're looking at today is that often Christians are vocal. But what vibrates from the Christian's mouth and lips is not the voice of praise, not the voice of proclamation and the preaching of the gospel, but the voice of complaint, the voice of grumbling and murmurings, as he puts it in verse 14. And when there should be emanating from the life of the child of God to, to this dark world, the light of the gospel, the light of a holy life, and the hope that they have through Christ, what comes forth is a barrage of moaning, groaning, grumbling, complaining, fault-finding, and sensuousness. Having thought about this in the week that has gone by, I have a theory that those who make the most noise complaining are doing it in some strange way to compensate for the lack of light in their life. There's no real fire in their bosom. The life of God isn't emanating from their lives in such a way that people can stop and say, there is a man that shows the life of Christ. So they have to complain about other people in order for others to take note of them. They're vocal in their complaining because maybe consciously or subconsciously, they're trying to distract from others seeing that they aren't shining. I don't know whether you accept that, that instead of shining, they're shouting and hope that people won't be able to tell the difference. Maybe they're not just trying to convince other people. It could be that they're trying to convince themselves that complaining compensates a lack of real fire and light. And I happen to believe that that it is those with no real vital relationship with Christ, not saying they're not saved, but they're not walking day by day in communion and dependence upon Christ. There's this void in their life. There's this emptiness that can only be filled with fellowship and communion with Christ, but they try to fill it with some kind of little crusade or gripe. And this thing takes the place of Christ in their life and they begin to convince themselves, this thing makes me spiritual. It may be that that thing of itself is spiritual. These type of people believe that this will substitute the light of God in your heart and shining out to the world around you. And it does not. And in fact, I believe as we go deeper and analyze the motivations behind believers who complain, who groan, who moan, who murmur and grumble, we find that Paul is really saying, now remember the context of the rest of what we've studied in this passage, the wondrous condescension of the Lord Jesus as he came from heaven to earth, as he stooped thought it not something to be grasped at, to be seen as God and to behave as God, but made himself of no reputation, humbled himself. You know all the rest. We've looked into it in great depth. But what Paul is really saying here is that those who grumble and complain are trying to pull others down 
that they might exalt themselves. You see it? They're not humbling themselves. They're not doing what he instructed in verse 3. Look at it. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Rather than build others up and lift and exalt others, they're pulling them down so that they, by default, might be exalted. I hope you can see the connection. And what doesn't help this in the life of Christians is the fact that we are programmed in our society today to be discontent. The media and advertising encourages us to to be discontent with the way things are, to want something more, to want something else. And it seems, as you study societies and civilization, that the more affluent a society gets, the more discontent it gets, the more it has, the more it wants. And we're bombarded with this fantasy world through the television, the movies, and advertising. The media continually assaults our senses with these alluring images and and often unrealistic pictures of what we can be if we had their product. This type of plastic perfection that they purport to us to be the norm It tells us, and there can be times that we let it in, this is what you should be, this is what you should have, and we make the false assumption and formula and equation that if I have that, or if I look like that, or if I be like that, I will be happy. And when we get those things, or perhaps don't get those things, We don't become happy. We become discontent. And discontent then breeds impatience. And you would know that impatience is a defining characteristic of our day. When someone pulls in front of you in the motorway or at the traffic lights, you no longer beep the horn uh, and maybe find people doing rude things to you. Now you go into your boot and, and, and lift a baseball bat and break their legs. Road rage. Because people more and more are getting impatient because their discontent has made them such. You don't need to go to those who commit road rage to see it. You can see it even in the church of Jesus Christ where this consumer culture has become more common. And that's why today more than ever there are more churches splitting in our land than we have ever known. Believers fighting and bickering with one another. And usually it's coming from the seed of complaining and malcontents in the assembly, which is more and more common today. People leave their church because the music's not fancy enough, or their children prefer a more modern church where their friends go to. Maybe it's a minor disagreement with the policy in the church or the leadership in the church. But what we are finding today is a consumer ideal in the church of Jesus Christ. If I don't like something, well, I leave it and I'll go to something I like better. If it doesn't give me the buzz, if it makes me discontent. But we find that most of these Christians that operate in this way are always discontent and are always moving around churches because they never find that happiness. They say to us as a church today, if we promote an entertainment atmosphere as many churches are today, 
we will be continually trying to meet the felt needs, the whims of those people who thrive on that and who find their contentment in it. You see, there's a great danger here. Because if we cater to to felt needs and whims, we operate on a superficial level and we supply the demand of those people who are yearning in expectations for the things which I would say are purely sensual. Let me give you an illustration. I like music. I might not like the type of music that you like, and you might not like the music that I like, but I like music, and I've got quite a few compact discs, and what would happen to me is, when somebody gives me a new compact disc, and I was saying this to somebody this week who gave me two, I will listen to that. And I listen to it over and over again and again, if I like it, of course, over and over again and again and again and again and again, until I'm absolutely sick of it. And then I'll throw it in the corner. And maybe a year from now or six months from now, I look down all the CDs that I haven't listened to in a while and then I'll put it on and then I'll do the same again. And listen and listen and listen and listen again. And and it's a purely sensual, there's nothing wrong with it. But all that it is, is I continually need this satisfaction. And I get this satisfaction until I become discontent. And when I become discontent, I need something new. And if I operate in the spiritual realm, in this kind of sensual capacity, felt needs, the whims, the expectations on a superficial level, I will be continually trying to meet that need. And as a church, if we do that, we will be continually changing and never be able to satisfy people. See, the church isn't meant to operate on a superficial level. It's meant to operate on a spiritual level. Because to do anything else actually leads to discontent, complaining, and eventually to impatience. And that's why the biblical command is so clear. Do not complain. Don't complain. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you will know that the people of God have been shamefully known for this sin. Perhaps they have been known for it more than the world. And it could be the case today that this is the sin that we could level at number one, the public enemy number one in the church to complain. Adam complained against God before Satan. You remember then, God said, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, well, it's not my fault. It's the woman that you gave me. And then the woman complained that that Adam encouraged her and, and also the serpent beguiled her. And there's this culture of blame right from the very beginning of time. Then Cain is punished for slaying his brother Abel. And he complains, this punishment is is too great. I, I cannot bear it. He complains against God's judgment upon him. You find the nation of Israel when they're delivered from Egypt. We, we see them praising God and singing psalms unto God. But what we often forget is three days later, they're complaining about the waters of Marah being too bitter to drink. And so God brings them to a place called Elam which is an oasis of rest, of sustenance, of quenching of their thirst. And they complain in Elam that God hasn't provided any food for them. When faithless spies come back from the promised land to give their their report that was dire and dismal and depressing, they complained 
again. You're going to bring us into this place to be killed. When God gave them bread from heaven, the food of angels, they complained they were getting sick of it and they were harping back to, to the garlic and the, and the onions and the leeks of Egypt. Let me show you an illustration of this to show you that this isn't a new phenomenon. Numbers 14. Numbers 14. You can see the pattern of complaining here. But what I want you to see is that their complaining became contagious. It spread. Verse 2. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return unto Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return unto Egypt. Verse 10. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. That's Moses and Aaron. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. One Israelite started complaining, and then he complained to another, and then another agreed with him. And then they began complaining to everyone around him. And before we know it, they're actually lifting up stones to stone the leaders that God had put over them. Because their complaining had led them to be discontent, and then they found themselves impatient, and they took the thing into their own hands. Paul, when he refers to that particular incident in 1 Corinthians 10, if you look at it, Verse 9 and 10 says these words, Neither let us test Christ as some of them also tempted him and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also that murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. When we go into the book of Jude, we find there also that the mark of the apostate in verse 16 of Jude is these are murmurers complainers walking after their own lusts and their mouth speaketh great swelling words having men's persons and admiration because of advantage. Now why am I bringing all these references to your attention? It's simply to show you that to complain against the Lord or to complain against the Lord's people is a very serious matter. And it is dogged the people of God from the very beginning of time, and it's still with the people of God today, we could turn to James 5, to First Peter 4, and the apostles there again are telling us, do not complain. It is a grievous sin against God. And so we have the command in our verse, do all things without murmuring or disputing. Stop complaining. Let's break this up for a moment. Do all things. That's remarkable because there's sometimes that we feel that we've got grounds. We're warranted. We're legitimate in our moaning and our complaining. But Paul is saying you shouldn't complain. As you work out your salvation, of course, as you're moving toward heaven, the only noise that you should be making is praise to God. Not complaining. Chapter 4, verse 4, that we look at later, 
It bears it out. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. This is a man who's locked in prison and he's saying, there's no warrant or justification at all for the child of God to be a moan. All things should be done without murmuring, without disputing. Now let's look at these two words. The first word murmuring could be translated grumbling. It's from a Greek word, and listen to it carefully. Gongos mosai, which is an onomatopoeic word, and that simply means a word that sounds like what it's describing. You've heard of a gong, haven't you? Gong, a big clang. And you have this word, gongos mosai. And Paul is using a word that nearly describes in its sound the guttural muttering sounds that people make when they're complaining. I don't know whether you've ever seen the cartoon Dastardly and Muttley, but the wee dog, when he gets in the bother and doesn't like what's going on, he makes that noise. You've heard it. And it's that sort of expression that comes deep down from in your being that you grumble. You murmur, you complain. And this word is used in John 7 of those who murmured and plotted against the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used in Acts chapter 6 of Christians who were complaining that as the alms were being distributed among the saints, that there was some kind of racism, that the Jews were getting more than the Gentiles, and from that there had to be appointed deacons. But it's this grumbling that is, is not immune from the people of God. And it's the same word that was used in 1 Corinthians 10.10 10, that we looked at there, there of the Old Testament saints murmuring against Moses. And their murmuring led to discontent. Their discontent led to impatience that made them bend down, lift a rock, and ready to kill Moses and Aaron. The next word, disputing, is from a Greek word, dialogosmos. Dialogus moss. And this is a little bit different because it's inner reasoning. It's complaining in your mind and in your heart. You see the, the likeness dialogue? It's like talking with yourself. And if grumbling is an emotional thing where these deep guttural sounds of moaning and murmuring come, this is an intellectual moaning. It's like an arguing maybe with yourself. I don't deserve that. I'm going to get my own back, or maybe even an arguing with God. Lord, this isn't right. Why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. But what Paul is really trying to get at is that both of these things, the emotional grumbling and the intellectual disputing and debating with yourself and God, all flow from pride. You have to remember that Paul was talking into a society where among the philosophers, particularly those who followed Aristotle, they were filled with such a pride and a debating spirit. They would sit in the marketplaces and debate this, that, and the other thing. Worthless nonsense. But they took pride in their ability to dispute, to complain, to murmur. And this thing was an epidemic in the city of Philippi where Paul's writing to. I wonder, do we ever complain against God. God asks us perhaps to do something, or maybe one of God's servants asks us to do something, and that thing costs us, and we begin to feel the price of what we're doing. Do we grumble, and do we say in our minds, well, why should I? It's not fair. 
And the import of what Paul is saying here is, I'm in prison, folks. I'm suffering for Christ. And in chapter 4, verse 11, we'll get to it at a later stage, he says this. Chapter 4 and verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, I'm not saying Paul didn't ask in his heart at times why. I'm not saying he wasn't confused. But what Paul is saying is that I never complain verbally or intellectually in such a way that the world around saw me as a grumbler and a complainer. That's what he's getting at. Now, what are the reasons why Paul tells them not to murmur or, or to complain? They're threefold. And I want you to get this because it's so important for our assembly and for our individual lives and for our evangelistic witness. The first reason is for our church. We ought not grumble and complain for the sake of our church. Verse 15, that ye may be blameless and harmless the sons of God without rebuke. Paul says you shouldn't murmur or complain in order that you become the children of God as he wants you to be. The type of child that he, he wants you to be. He uses this blameless and harmless, or harmless could be translated innocent. The tragedy is that we are children at times. But in the wrong sense, in the way that we bicker over nonsense, we pout our mouths and we sulk over at times imaginary slights and hurts from our brethren and sisters in Christ. But Paul says an essential part of this, to be a child of God, to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ, is to quit complaining, to be blameless. That simply means the root meaning without defect or blemish, a moral and a spiritual purity that no one can point a finger at you and say, I know what he did. I saw him doing this, that, or the other thing. You're not to blame others like that, but equally they're not to find any fault in you in order to blame you and in order to incite a complaining and a murmuring spirit. The word innocent means blameless, as I, I said, or unmixed or unadulterated. It's actually used of unalloyed metal, metals that aren't mixed. It's used of wine that isn't mixed with water. And what Paul's saying, you're not to be mixed with the world, the sentiments of the world, the philosophies and, and attitudes of the world. You're to be different, and you're to be seen to be different for the sake of the witness of the gospel of Christ. The Lord used this term, blameless, Harmless, when he said, you're to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. People aren't meant to be able to point the finger at you with regards to business or, or how, how you're a neighbor or your attitudes or your speech or even how you complain about other Christians. It should not be so. But Paul says you should be children of God without rebuke, without reproach. Not words closely related to blameless, but it's used over and over again in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of the lamb that is without blemish and without spot. You're to be seen and witnessed. 
by the world around it as being pure, untouched, uncontaminated of any blame or guilt. That's something else, isn't it? You might be sitting here like I was studying this and thinking, well, how is this possible? Well, it's not possible on our own. It is possible to work out our salvation like this for the sake of the assembly. But we can't do it alone. We must be working out what God has put in us by the Holy Spirit. We must realize that it is in total and absolute dependence upon his power, his enablement, and his grace that we can do these things. And as Jude said, he alone is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless, blameless is the word, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You will have noted in these past weeks that one of the chief joys that the apostle found in Philippi would be their unity in Christ. They're putting one another before each other. They're bending over backwards to serve one another. And Paul says you can't do that and complain and grumble within the church. But it goes on further because Paul says the reason why I've commanded this of you is also for your world, the world in which you live, that you may be blameless, harmless sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. You see, there is a, a tremendous negative impact upon the unsaved, those without Christ in the world around us, when we bicker and fight and grumble among ourselves. I hope common sense would tell you that. But Paul is proving it by saying, you live in a crooked world. The word is bent, curved, twisted. The Greek is scoliosis, which is a scolios, which is the word we get the medical term scoliosis, which involves a curvature of the spine, a misalignment of the back, and Paul is saying, you're living in this bent, warped, twisted world. And therefore, in that world, you've got to be seen to be straight. Crooked and perverse, it's a similar word, but it's more active. It's d dynamic. It means that they try to do all around us in this world in a crooked, diluted and sinful, iniquitous way. But you're to be different in your dealings. And especially in your verbal conversation, your life is to be without murmuring and disputing. Living pure, united, peaceful lives, Paul says, is a prerequisite for taking the gospel to such a crooked and perverse world. We are to be in the midst of them. Let's not miss that point. We are to be in the middle of the world geographically, but spiritually we ought to be utterly and totally separate from them. Now the big question here is, are we silent lights to the world around us? Or does the way we behave, how perhaps we shelter ourselves and segregate ourselves from the world and try to get as far away from them as possible, or the fact that they witness us bickering and fighting and complaining over nonsense, does that affect our witness? Paul says we are to preach, holding forth the word of life. But what he's saying is that the backdrop of holding forth the word of life is to be the shining, blinding light of the lives that we live. Among whom, he says, look at it, ye shine as lights. It's, it's reminiscent of what we learnt 
in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 14 and 16, where we to live as the light of the world, as a light set on a high hill, as salt in the earth, that men may see our good works, not our murmuring and our grumbling and our complaining, and when they see our light, glorify our Father which is in heaven as we reflect the light of the world around us. The picture that Paul has here is the dark black backdrop of space and the stars shining forth. It is the lighthouse directing the storm-tossed mariner into the safe harbor. In fact, the Greek word is as luminaries. The insinuation is he's talking about the sun and the moon, the greatest lights of all. We're to be like that. That guide the whole world, the weather, the seas, and the sailors. And as the world receives light from the sun and from the moon, so we are to hold the word of life forth. And, and, and the life is to be almost coming through us to that word and into their hearts. We are to be silent but effective in it. The whole point is, our lives are to be the platform for the gospel. Because the way that God has worked right throughout all of time is the word becomes flesh and dwells among men. The word is to become flesh in our lives. We're to be like live wires, literally, that when they come into contact with dead ones, by the process of induction, we transfer the very power of our lives it's like telegraph messages that we are to communicate by this divine power, the light that shines out of our lives, that we are Christ, and it's meant to ignite other people and affect other people. question we need to ask ourselves is, what do we communicate? We can influence others by currents of good or currents of bad but what do other people get when they rub up and down against us? Do they get complaints, moanings and grumblings? What they need to get is the light of the gospel, not just verbally. They hear you say, you know, you need to be saved. And then in the next breath, you're writing off some other believer. You think they're stupid? I was talking with someone this week about how it's not enough to give out a tract. It's not enough to preach the gospel from the pulpit. We must be among the lost for long enough time that we start to affect them by our light and to give them a chance to let our light shine upon them if we have any light at all. It is the word of life, the gospel that brings life. Don't misunderstand me. It is the power in the gospel. But what Paul is saying is your lives are to be an illustration of that gospel to show that it works. Your life ought to lay weight to the words of the gospel. The unbeliever is an unlit lamp. And I believe perhaps the allusion that Paul is giving here is to the Philippian jailer. From Philippi, of course, in Acts 16. You remember what happened when the earthquake came to free Paul and Silas? He was plunged into darkness and he asked for a light. And Paul and Silas were his lights. They were his lights. 
Why? Because that man had heard them singing and praying and giving praise unto God in the prison cell. And it wasn't just when he said, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it did the trick. But this man knew that the lips that was, was speaking the word of God were in front of a life that showed the power of God and the light of the gospel. We are to be both communicators and illuminators. We are to be both voices and lights. We are to speak, but we're also to shine. We're to be heard, but we're also to be felt. Silent lights. For our church, for our world, and finally for our leaders. Paul says that I may rejoice, verse 16, in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Ways translates it like this, that I have not run my race for a phantom prize, nor toiled for an elusive way. I don't think Paul was going back on what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, that no labor for the Lord is in vain. That was a different sense, I believe, than what Paul is saying here. And he's insinuating that there is a sense in which it is possible to labor on God's children in vain with regards to the judgment seat. It's like competing for a prize that doesn't exist. Running a marathon and finding that you were running for nothing. Like working for wages that are never paid. There's, there's nothing at the end of your day's work. And Paul is saying, I want you people, my people, to be a source of joy to me at the judgment seat that when I stand before God I will rejoice when he brings your name up. Isn't that what he said of the Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19? For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. He wanted to be able to joy in the Philippian believer. You know, the best thing a believer can do for their leaders and overseers in Christ, apart from praying for them, is to stop moaning. Stop complaining. And be united so that we can say on that day, I did not run in vain or toil in vain. In other words, to be able to see that the work we're putting in to the children of God, that it's profitable. Now, don't misunderstand me, but let's be honest. There are times when you're in the Lord's work and you feel that you're wasting your time. And that might be wrong, but that's the facts. That sometimes the Lord's servants feel like that. And Paul didn't want to feel like that now or at the judgment seat. That he had poured all his efforts from prison into the Philippian Christians and they were wasted for all they did was moan and complain. On the ceiling of the great state hall in Versailles, there's a painting of Hercules in mythological surroundings and it says that the, the, the artist took two and a half years to complete the magnificent work and when he got to the end of it, he was given no pay. 
and he was so utterly devastated that he committed suicide in that very room beneath that great painting because he felt that life seemed without purpose to him if there was an absence of commensurate reward for the work that has been done. Pointless. Now there is a sense in which God's work is God's wages. But there is another sense that in the light of the fact that God has promised reward, who wants to be wasting their time? I don't. Sometimes leaders hear the attitude, it's none of your business. You mind your own business what I do with regards to the nights I'm not at the meetings, why I'm not at the Lord's table. Can I say to you, it is my business. It will be my business at the judgment seat. And I don't want to have wasted my time on any of you. The greatest joy a leader can have is what, what John said in 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. God save us from living small, inconsequential lives. For he would have us shine. And if he would have us shine, we must burn. And no lamp ever burns or gives light without burning up and consuming oil. There's no candle gives light without melting wax. And John the Baptist was described as a burning and a shining light. He shone and he lost his head for it. It cost him to burn. Will we stop murmuring and complaining? And will we start shining and burning for God? For then our church will be blessed. The world will be blessed. And your leaders will be blessed when they stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Our Father, help us to see them waiting, looking at us, silently watching all that we do. Oh, Father, love is what Jesus came to unfold. And we pray that that condescending humility and love of Christ may shine forth in our lives as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as you work in us that this world that is crooked and perverse around us may see the light of the gospel in our lives and may be drawn to that light in salvation. Lord, help us in this assembly to be those who are marked by the fact that we love one another. That what this world will hear from us is not a mixed message of complaining and preaching of the gospel. But Lord, that they will see the love that we have for each other and for them, and the message of love, and that they will come to Christ through the word of life. In his name we pray. Amen.